Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Amalek, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So she went and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is Naomi, the Moabitess, who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given my, me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the, he the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. She threshed the barley and gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out some and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one who place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemed. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. The best has just been said. Us preachers think the best is to come when we comment. The best has been read. This is the word of God. And uh, something you need to know about narrative preaching. Uh, is narrative preaching and narrative stories since all the Bible is about one person. Ultimately, God revealed in Jesus Christ, think of this book as a signpost saying, this way to Bethlehem, this way 
If this book doesn't happen, there's no need of looking for the shepherds to come to Bethlehem. No need of looking for the Magi to show up. You've got to go to this story to find the ancestry of the greatest king and the ancestry of the Messiah according to the flesh. So this is no incidental little book written about 1,000 B.C. when David was in power and written to tell the background of how his family came to have their relatives. We're going to look in this chapter as we kind of go through the narrative, three things I want us to see, three big thoughts. The chapter is full of grace. It'd be the Hebrew word hen, of favors, the way it's translated. This Ruth needs grace if she and Naomi are going to make it. They've come from Moab, fresh graves, not only two boys have been buried, a husband has been buried, an estate has been sold because of the poverty and the famine that was in the land during the days of the judges. So we have two widows that come back, but one is in a precarious position. She's young, but she's a Gentile, and she is from the people of Moab that Deuteronomy 23 said, for 10 generations, any descendants of Moab are forbidden to come within the assembly of Israel. 10 generations. That 10 generations has happened, but she has the stigma when she comes back to Israel. You belong to the people who've been giving us fits ever since the Exodus, ever since the book of Judges. You belong to the people who are our enemies. I just did a youth camp for a bunch of Russian, Ukrainian young people. I had to tell myself they're not the enemy. I was thinking of fallout shelters and Sputnik in the 50s. The Russians are coming, and all of a sudden I'm seeing all these Christian young people from communist countries. Their folks have fled because we have 250,000 Russians in Sacramento. And many of them have come to faith in Christ. So we see in this story, this narrative, the need to find grace. And Ruth finds it, but she finds something much more. She finds a kinsman redeemer that is able to buy her property back, she and Naomi. For a kinsman redeemer could do three things. If you'd sold yourself into slavery, they could buy you out. If you'd sold your property, they could buy it back because when they allotted the land, when they went in, the 12 tribes, God did not want the tribe of Reuben to get more land than Gad had. They wanted them to all, it wasn't one tribe is buying out another tribe's property rights. As long as there was a living family member had you sold that property, they could buy it back for you. And then there's a twist we'll get into more as we get to chapter 3. God did not want any name to be dropped from the tribes of Israel. And so Naomi has two sons that give her no children. Her only hope of having a legacy is that this Ruth has been barren for some reason is if anybody would dare dream of marrying this Gentile girl and pay the price for her to become their bride, if that could happen, it would be as though it were a miracle. And we'll see this develop in this great love story of Ruth. Let's follow the narrative. We'll go narrative, and then I'll make a few points to see what I see this chapter telling us about. We have, first of all, that Ruth, by the providence of God, just happens to get in the field of a kinsman redeemer. She tells Naomi in the morning, I want to go out today because I hope to find grace. I hope to find favor, is what she's saying. I want to find 
grace. I hope somebody will look with pity upon me and see that you and I are two broke widows. We need food. We've lost our land. We're probably living in a shanty somewhere on someone's property. We've lost the land. And we're two widows just trying to eke out a living. Who knows how old Naomi was? She was so old, she wasn't in the field. It was Ruth that went there. And notice what she says, verse 2. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, she knows nothing. That's just her wish list. I want to go out and wind up in somebody's field where I'll find grace. It's like you going out early in the morning. I hope I find grace in the eyes of some employer so that he hires me. That's all she's saying. She doesn't know anything. This is just set up front. But it does mention along the way, just to let you know the narrative and the tension, there was a man that could do them a great favor who was a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. But that's just mentioned up front. Ruth doesn't know anything about him. Naomi hasn't seen him since she's gone back to Bethlehem. But it's just, the narrator just wants you to know there was somebody that if she could find grace in his eyes, there was hope. There'd be a future. And so we find her going down. She winds up, and notice verse 3. She set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she, old version, just happened, just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, that's, this is a story of providence. It's like the book of Esther. She just happened to win the beauty contest. She just happened to be next to the king when they want to kill all the Jews. Her uncle Mordecai just happens to be in it. Let me say this. The world, deist, the Benjamin Franklins who said that God wound up the universe and then took a long trip away. They can't understand nor appreciate providence that God is working in history behind the movement of nations, raising up leaders, taking them down, orchestrating Christ in the fullness of time came and was born of a woman. There is someone working in the shadows all the time in the life of the believer. It's called providence, not chance. It's not luck. It's not the rolling of the dice. Why don't you pray an extra hour instead of spending money at Reno you can't afford? I'd rather have a good prayer meeting than a good lotto ticket. If you pray, you might get the right. No, well, you know, pray. Pray. You know, uh, pray over your ticket. Uh, not, I mean, let's move right on. Uh, and so they, they get in the field, and she's working there. And according to the law of Moses, they were to leave enough grain in their fields in the corners. They were forbidden to harvest the corner of a field, to feed the uh, poor among them, to feed the alien. They didn't go and pick it for them. They left it for them to pick. Now, some landowners uh, were tight, and they wouldn't do that. They'd leave nothing. And so they, they broke the law of Moses. And the day of Judges, you'd expect them to break this law too because they've broken every other law. But it so happens, and if you're a foreigner, you, you show up, who are you? Well, they knew a little bit about her because Bethlehem was just a small village. Everybody gossiped. You knew everything in an instant. You didn't need a newspaper. You just needed the women to talk to each other. You knew what was going on. And the word's out, but she falls into this field against some objections, but she didn't find that in this field. And so she's gleaning, hard work, and God is making provision and giving favor. And all of a sudden, Bethlehem, 
what comes from Bethlehem, but Boaz, probably making a bank deposit, wants to go by and check up on his land. And when he gets there in verse 7, it says uh, he saw this girl out in the field, and he checked with his foreman who said, well, she's been working all day, took a short rest. Sometimes they would have lean-tos and a few branches to get under to get out of the sun. And Boaz uh, said to her, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And the idea is touch you to harm. In the days of Judges, rapes were happening. Laws were being broken. And here we got a Gentile widow, young woman. You, you could be in dangerous places, honey. Stay in my field. And I've commanded my foreman and the men in charge of that field, bring no harm to you. You're in a safe spot in my field. Know that I've given the word. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? The word's grace. That you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. It's a terrible thing to be the racial minority wherever you are. It makes you nervous. One year I was at a uh, 4th of July celebration, and everybody there looked like a redneck except my six-foot-four son-in-law, and I was there with him. I got nervous. I was hoping nobody would want to mess with him. I'd never been used to being around, being the minority. Here she's a minority, but she's not just a minority. She is a Gentile, but from a hostile Gentile country, and she's got the stigma. They're not ignorant of history. She is in a vulnerable, vulnerable place, still a young woman. But she's outvoted here, outranked. What she needs is grace, but there's nothing going for her to get grace on the social level. And so Boaz has been informed about her background and her history. She's got one thing going for her. She has been loyal to her mother-in-law. And if Boaz knew it, if Boaz had read the first chapter, she has accepted the God of Israel while in Boab, and she gave up the God Chemos, a national threat one of the worst gods you can serve. And Israel, many of them went in to that worship in the land. They accepted the gods of Moab. But she abandoned her gods. While the other sister-in-law said, I've got to have my home. I've got to have my gods. And so Ruth says, I throw in my lot with Naomi. I throw in my lot with her people. I throw in my lot with her God. I'm counting on the God of Abraham to take care of me. A great conversion happened in this Gentile girl. And she says, I didn't think you'd be good to me because he prays for her. He prays a benediction. May God repay you. May God reward you. May you come to find refuge beneath the wings of God. One of the most beautiful benedictions in all the Bible. I never forget it. 1967, a man sent me a card with that verse, and I've never forgotten it. I was teaching at a small Bible college, barely surviving, barely making it, and I got a card from a man, and he wrote Ruth 2:12. I looked it up. I've known it ever since. May you be rewarded under the wings of Him that you've come to rest under the wings of God. We're going to look at a little bit later in the application what these wings really stand for. That's a beautiful comparison. God is like a bird with wings. That's interesting. 
What in the world does that mean? We'll, we'll gather that up. So he, he blesses her in the narrative, and uh, he says, uh, I want to be gracious to you from verse 8 right down to uh, verse 16. It's the grace of Boaz. Stay in my field. You'll be protected in my field. Uh, you have found favor in my eyes. Matter of fact, I'm asking for a divine benediction. I'm praying you'll come under the wings of God in the midst of your pain and suffering. And then at mealtime, he did, does something unthinkable, unheard of. He asked her to eat with him. Now, he owns the field. His name uh, is literally, he's called a mighty man, a gabor, a mighty warrior, mighty in law, mighty in wealth. He, it, it's, a, it's a mighty term that they call him, a mighty man. This is one of the wealthiest, most outstanding available bachelors in Bethlehem. And he says to a girl that's a Gentile that he's just met, and the only thing about her that he knows is, I think she was pretty. I, I think he, I give him credit for having good taste. You know, you can be pretty, by the way, and be godly. You know, I, you don't want to be like that one guy that someone told him to look up the definition of ugly, and they had his picture there. You know, I grew up, we were so afraid of our young people sinning, we tried to get them as ugly as we could. That way you won't lust. I'm never tempted to lust after a cactus bush. Well, let me tell you, getting ugly isn't the way to control lust. You can be pretty and know God. So I think she was a good-looking gal. And the young gal, he calls her daughter, so he must have been quite a bit older. And he, she's saying, I get to eat lunch with the boss. I get to eat lunch with the owner, and he just met me for the first time. I was looking for grace. The grace I really needed was to go home with 30 pounds of grain to feed my mother-in-law and I. But now you want to have lunch with me? Yes, come on over. Let's drink together some vinegar wine, and let's have, let's roast some grain. You have that kind of diet, we'd all be healthier. And so she goes and she has the meal, and uh, then he tells the man again, he says, don't let her glean in my fields and don't reproach her. And this is beautiful. Pull out some of the bundles for her the old King James said, leave handfuls on purpose. And the idea is, as you're gleaning through your fields, don't clean it bone dry. I want you to intentionally be dropping out handfuls of grain so that as she's coming behind you, she's going to say, well, this is like just picking up gold. It's right in my path. How did that happen? The boss told the workers what to do. The kinsman redeemer said, put it in her path, put it in her path. And so she goes home with 30 pounds of grain before the day's over. An abundance could feed them for two weeks. Put handfuls of grain in her path. I want to be sure she's protected, and I want to be sure she's provided for. Well, she gleans in the field, and... Uh, she uh, goes home, running home to Naomi, and Naomi is her manager, asks her 19, where have you been? Where have you worked today? And she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you, bringing home 30 pounds of grain. Somebody was looking out for you, is what she's saying. And she told her mother-in-law the man's name was Boaz. And then the prayer of Naomi, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness or grace has not forsaken the living or the dead. This is the first hope that comes into Naomi's life in this book. She's a widow. She's buried sons. She's buried husband. She's lost her land. She's, she's been stripped in Moab. And she says, my name is Mara. 
I'm a bitter woman, for the hand of God is against me. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The first break into her despair comes and said, God has not forgotten us. God has, he's turning his hand from discipline to now provision. And this is a big turning point in her perspective on God. For she's a woman of faith, but she's a discouraged woman. She doesn't know what else she's going to bury, what else she has to lose. And all of a sudden, this girl comes back. I met a man today. He sent me home with all the grain I could eat. He gave me all the protection he could afford, and he's a mighty warrior. I found grace in the sight of the Lord today. He put a kinsman redeemer named Boaz in my life. And Naomi, her face is going to be lifted up. God hasn't forgot us. This man is one of our relatives. And when you're broke, you want good relatives. And everyone who has money said, oh, I don't want them to know I've got it. The man is a close relative. He's one of our redeemers. And we'll look at this, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, a great picture of Christ. Someone related to us is able to get us out of our poverty. Someone maybe, and that Naomi, I'm sure, she was always hoping this young girl could remarry. Never thought she'd remarry in Israel. Thought it would be down in Moab. And so, Ruth keeps telling her, he told me to stay close to the young men. He said he would protect me. He would watch over me. Well, I think something is interesting by contrast. She found grace in the eyes of Boaz. And there's some things about her that would make you think she would deserve it. And there's a whole lot about her that wouldn't. Listen to this. What was against her finding grace? What was against it? She's a Gentile. She's a, not just a Gentile, but a Moabite. It'd almost be like saying, related to the brothers of Goliath. Her people are our enemy. That's going against her. She was in an enemy status if this man didn't show grace. Uh, according to the law in Deuteronomy 23, no Moabites shall enter the assembly of Israel for 10 generations. Who knows if she's the 10th generation, the 8th or the ninth? have nothing to do with her. She's under a curse for their treatment of Israel. Uh, she's a widow. Who wants to get hung up with a widow? That means in need. Uh, where are your children to take care of you? I have no children. Well, go home. Where are your kinfolks? She's a widow too, and she's just as broke as me. Well, what's the dowry? No dowry. What do you have to offer? All I've got to offer today is I'm hungry and I'm broke. That's all I've got to offer. And I'm a widow. And I'm from a broken family. We've all been broken. Um, now, what, what is there going for her? What's going? It's not stated, and maybe I'm taking a greater liberty, because it doesn't say it, but I think she still was good looking. I'm just guessing. I, I mean, I don't know how an eligible bachelor like Boaz had not married yet. I don't know. I don't know why. But something sure made him take a quick interest. Could it be? Maybe it was that Chanel number no. five, Bethlehem brand. I don't know. Something caught his attention. come on. This is a love story, the whole thing. Whoa, I, I, who are you? Uh, who, who are you related to? Come here, can we have lunch together? You don't normally do that with people that you don't think there could ever be a future. So who knows? I'll give her credit for at least being good looking. Uh, 
She was young. Boaz is getting older and has not married. Uh, I don't know why he's never married, but who knows? He might be thinking his time's running out. Anything will do. Uh, she had a reputation for her loyal love. Her reputation preceded her. At least she loved Naomi. And he may have known she had accepted the God of Israel. I'm not sure. But to make her as devoted as she was to Naomi, she had to be of a special, loyal character. And then, a woman of faith. I thought of this. Uh, what in the world do you have going for you for God to have grace on you? What, what can you uh, come to God with and say, uh, please show grace and mercy on me and I'll tell you why I deserve it. Good looking, loyal. No, 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 no. The story of God's grace with us by comparison is we had nothing to commend us to God. Our best deeds were like filthy garments. Um, we were Jews and Gentiles lost because we preferred to do our own way other than God's. We were rebels. We were not loyal. We were lawbreakers. We were ungodly, unlikely, and unworthy. We had broken families, broken relationships. And the only thing I know that made us ever get grace is the kindness of God without merit in us. I don't know why God saved you over your neighbor, over your brother, over your sister. There's a lot of people. The only Christian in their family was them. My wife was one. Her father was the son of a preacher. Never know him to come to faith. Her mother, I don't know. Her brother may have professed faith was here, we're hoping. But there's a lot of you that came from backgrounds where you're the only believer in your family. Why you? What did you bring to the table that was so special? What merit did you bring? You did fewer sins? You weren't as bad? Well... We were all bad in the sight of God. There was none righteous, no, not one. None who understood God, none who sought God. You didn't get, become a believer because you sought him. He sought you. Sheep don't seek the shepherd. Shepherds seek the sheep. Why did he want you? Why did you find grace? It is a mystery so deep that uh, I cannot give you the answer. Why you? Why you? Sometimes I wonder how any of us got it when I know how blasted Henri we can act even when we know him. It's amazing how much goofing up you can do and still call him father. You don't know any Christians that have messed up their life, do you? I mean, they've told, not, don't marry an unbeliever. No, huh? well, I'll get right with God after I marry. They get right with God, hopefully, but they lost everything. You see, we're in total contrast. I have no merit to ever get the attention of my kinsman, Redeemer, Jesus. There was no merit. Don't try it until you see yourself as unworthy. But she did go to town, and she said, I'm not going where I can find merit. I'm going where I can find grace. I need grace. She, she knew that. She was vulnerable. And then uh, I, I just have to share something that's so beautiful. Uh, her future is all wrapped up in verse 12. And I want to show you a marvelous parallel. Notice verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. He said, who are you? This is when she 
meets him out at the threshing floor in the evening. And he, he's fallen asleep, and he wakes up startled, and there she is. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What does your Bible say? Does it say spread your garment? Same Hebrew word for wings as garment. And it means the corners of your garment, the borders of a garment. Same Hebrew word. It's used in Numbers 15 of the borders, the hem of your garment. You shall sew blue on the borders of your garment to remind you to follow my law and not your heart. Same word. And so what he's really saying is what he prayed for her. She's over here in chapter 3. He said, spread your wings over me. Spread your garment over me so that it means I'm coming under your protection. It's a beautiful picture of God that when you come to Jesus Christ, what's happening is you're coming under the wings of God. And wings is a symbol that stands for God's power, God's protection, God's provision. Let me give you, walk you through the Bible on it. Exodus 19, he says to Israel, I bore you on eagles' wings out of Egypt. And Deuteronomy 32 said, and there was no other God involved. I alone got you out of Pharaoh's house and got you out of slavery. It was my power that liberated and delivered you. Israel, I bore you on my wings. You didn't get out of Egypt by keeping the law. You didn't get out of Egypt by promising to be good. I delivered you in my power, and it's just like I flew you out, and I brought you into a land. You see, he's using his deliverance in the name of the wings of a mighty bird, I flew you out. He gets to the Psalms. And let me just give you some Psalms. Just uh, 17.8, listen to this. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalms 36.7, how precious is your loving kindness. Children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wing. 57.1, be gracious. My soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wing. 61.4, let me dwell in your tent forever. I will take refuge until destruction is past. 91.4, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. The same word used in chapter 3 that he throws his garment, the border of it, over this widowed Moabite girl. It's the word that come under divine protection. And one of the great things we've got to realize in our salvation, what you really got in on when you receive Christ, the Redeemer, when you receive Christ, it's as though he's thrown over you his protection. He's thrown over you his covering, and under his covering, you've come under his power, you've come under his protection, and you've come under his provision. I'll take care of you. That's exactly what will happen in chapter 3. So I titled this chapter, The Riches of Grace. A woman who had no merit, really, didn't have a chance in a thousand of getting the attention of the most handsome, wealthiest man in Bethlehem, how could she ever find favor in this guy's eyes? He could hire more servants than she could ever match. The providential plan of God was bringing her under his wings to protect her, to provide for her. I'm reminded of Isaiah 40 when he said, when you can't run anymore, and when you can't walk anymore, if you wait on me, I'll give you all the power you need. 
For by waiting you shall mount up with wings as an eagle, and you shall fly like an eagle. The source of power for the church is waiting on God. And sometimes I think you think as pastors and preachers, when we don't have anything else to do, we like to beat you up over prayer. You're not praying enough. No, no. Now, here's the big concern. I don't have the power to quit the habit. I don't have the power to get over my temper. I don't have the power. Do you have enough time to wait on God for him to infuse his strength in you? I love Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who infuses, infuses his strength, his power in me. God is a mighty, mighty eagle. That was the emblem of Babylon and many of the Gentile countries around Israel was the mighty eagle with his wings out. Who has a chance against this mighty bird of the air? And God says, my people shall mount up with wings as an eagle. My people shall run to me and I shall be their refuge from the judgment of God, their protection against their enemies. God is a hiding place for his people. When you read Revelation 6, men and women run for the rocks and the mountains to hide them from the wrath that is coming on the earth. Read it in Revelation 6. They're in the caves. They're in the hiding places of the mountains. Hide us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb and of God. They don't have a hiding place. The best they can do is a cave, and God can find you in a cave. Judgment can reach to a cave. Judgment can reach a fallout shelter. You can't hide when God decides to judge. No hiding place. We used to sing a song, Sinner Man, where are you going to run to? Sinner man, where are you going to run? Where are you going to run? Where are you going to run when Jesus comes? You'll run to the mountains, but they won't hide you. Sinner man, where are you going to run? Jesus said moving words. At the end of his ministry, he knows he's only got one more chapter in Matthew to go, and he's going to tell you what the end times are going to look like. Chapter 25, he'll tell you the parables of the ten virgins, and on chapter 6, he goes to trial. But he says in chapter 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you about me as a mother hen gathers her chicks. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to protect you. But you would not. You would not come. And now I see judgment is coming. Woe is coming upon you, city of Jerusalem. And the day will come, you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God's wings had flown into town. And Malachi said that. The son of righteousness shall come. And Elijah and John the Baptist shall announce his arrival, and he will fly in town with healing in his wings, and he's inviting you as a nation. Oh, Israel, get under my wings. Uh, 70 AD is coming. Titus is going to slaughter you. Titus is going to kill your babies. Titus is going to plow the city under. You'll rebel again in 88 AD. I'm going to do it again. You need to get under my wings. It's the only place you can be hid from the wrath to come. And I think what we ought to be yelling to this generation, wrath is coming. It's in vogue now for everybody to say America is in decline. Well, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure that out. When you throw him out of uh, politics, when you throw him out of school, when you buy all of the legislation that is anti-God, anti-Bible, God's going to have to apologize to Sodom if he doesn't judge us. We will be judged. And we might be being judged when we've got a nation that can't employ its own and we're getting broker by the day. Judgment has already started. There's only one place you can find refuge. There's a greater judgment coming. It's called the day of the Lord. 
when God visits this earth and pours out his unmitigated wrath and men stagger beneath the judgment of God, where will you flee? Flee to the Lamb of God, O John said, that you might escape the wrath of God. I'm amazing, amazed at how much anemic preaching is going on. It's the fluff hour. You don't hear sin, you don't hear the cross, and you don't hear hell and judgment, and we're just lying through our teeth. We're doing like the prophets in Isaiah's day, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. There's only peace when you get beneath the wings of Christ, our God. This little gal, her only hope for any future, for any posterity, to even eat, all of hers was physical. She has no clue of the plan that's being worked out. She has no clue that she's going to be the great-grandmother of the greatest king Israel ever had. She has not a clue. But she is finding grace. And I say to you, the only place you'll find grace is by fleeing to Christ. He's the source of all of God's grace. And in Christ, you come under divine protection. You come under the power of God. And everything that can damn you, everything that can ruin you, is abated by the shadowing, covering of Jesus Christ. He is our atonement. He is our covering. And so, in a book that is a mere signpost, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, and it's acted out in cameo fashion. Four little chapters, but all in there is a picture of the coming Redeemer called Jesus. Did you know why I went to the book of Ruth? Redemption is often made no more than a financial deal. I want to redeem something. I'll give you 20 bucks. You give me the product. I just redeemed it. But we weren't redeemed with silver and gold. We were redeemed by the life of the Redeemer. And you know why the Redeemer laid it down? I, I, don't ask me to explain this. Don't ask me. He literally loves you. He wants a bride. And he knows he's got to make a bride up from the poor, the sinful, the unworthy, the no merit, nothing, nothing. And in this wedding, he pays for the wedding dress. He pays to get the bride pretty. He pays for the hairdo. He pays for the ma He pays that for, he says in Ephesians, I will wash her and make her clean. I'll have a beautiful church, a beautiful bride without spot or wrinkle, and I paid the fee to make you my own. Whether you know it or not, our Redeemer didn't just go to the bank to purchase us. He went to the wedding altar. He loves us. That's why he saved us. Why? Make up your list, and none of it will be enough merit to make him really love you. It was all because of him. It's all in him. There's something about love that is strange. Some men love some women that I call it a present-day miracle. Have you ever seen a couple and you say, I couldn't live with her for three minutes. And, and, then, and then you go out with a guy, she's such a wonderful wife. She's a, And they said, don't you think so, Pastor? Isn't God good, brother? Isn't he wonderful? Pastor, I said, don't you think, wouldn't you like that? Sir, could we go on? Let's study the book of Revelation. Because you don't know how he picked that or how she picked that. You know why? We don't love her like he does. Marriage is an institution, and love is blind. So it's an institution for the blind. <laughs> so, you know, you can't, you can't get over. And to say in 1 Corinthians, many ungodly, and such were some of you. You were this and that, not noble birth, 
not this. You were nothings, nobodies, but he made a people out of you that no one could boast in his presence. And I want to say this. I'm so glad God saw a way to save Gentiles. I love my Jewish brethren. I spent two days with them this week. But to see, sometimes people say, well, do uh, that mean my loved one's perishing? Well, let me tell you, friend, all of my ancestry perished all the way from Genesis 4 to the cross. And none of my family ever came to know the Savior until the 1800s. So that means all the background of the Howards, the Yunts, the Meeks, Germans, English, and Irish, and a Cherokee they picked up in Oklahoma, one squaw that a Howard man married. None of them back there knew God. None of them. For centuries, there was no hope for my family until the kinsman redeemer came, and he included us. And so we will sit down with Jews and Gentiles at the Mary Supper of the Lamb and say, Yeshua got a seat for us at the Messianic Feast. We can sit at his table, and we can go with everybody up to Jerusalem and say, this is our king, too. This is our savior, too. No one has ever loved you more than Jesus. He found out a way to buy you back, and we'll continue to look at that. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that with no merit of our own to ever be selected by Jesus, you found a way. Love always finds a way. We thank you for our great salvation in Jesus. We bless your name. Let us forever be grateful. Forever be grateful. Like for our ushers to come. And uh, we fell off $14,000 last week. So pray, give as the Lord has blessed you. And uh, reach forward and take your neighbor's wallet and give like you've always wanted. So uh, anyway, we, when you drop 14000 a week, we want you to know that. Don't fall down on your giving. God's been blessing. We've been breaking even our first time in years. But uh, we just need your help. Continue to give as God directs you. Our Father, you are the God of all supply. I pray that you'll continue to supply the financial needs of this church. Our greater need is for you, you, you. Under your wings, we find provision and protection. We ask supply according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And the church said, amen. amen.